Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Brad Lee. Brad is a former CEO of Bregg, a company that provides premium sports medicine products that advance orthopedic patient care. Brad, thanks for coming on today. I am happy to be here, Darren. It's going to be fun. I'm uh, looking forward to the topics. Likewise. I always love going back and it, tell me about little Brad. Like what kind of things was Brad interested in before he ascended to become a CEO? Uh, well, that's, that's interesting. It eventually shaped what I did later, but little Brad took everything apart that could be taken apart. The mechanical engineering mindset was very early in the process. And, uh, I got in a lot of trouble and spent a lot of time in, uh, being grounded as a result of that, but did a lot of that grew up in a, just a, really normal environment in the Southeast and had a ton of friends and spent a ton of time outside back when the dogs could run around between yards and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, but that was really how I spent most of my time as a kid was in those environments. And I started to get that mechanical inclination, which followed me for a long time. And then I put an end to that. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Yeah. It's funny thinking about Brad getting getting in trouble, getting grounded. What kind of things did you do? Do you blow up mailboxes or? I was taking the vacuum cleaner apart to see how it worked. When I was told not to do it, I was leaving my dad's tools and na- at neighbors' houses when he told me I shouldn't be doing that because, of course, I was working on something at their house. And then I had go-karts as a kid, and I was taking them places I shouldn't have been taking them and doing things to them I shouldn't have been. It was never clandestine, but always problematic anyway. So what was after that? I, I see you went to undergrad and I think you did chemical engineering and that seems like a interesting step. How did you go from whatever kind of engineering and tinkering you were interested in to getting involved and inspired by chemical engineering? As with many people, Darren, I think, you know, you're, you have a lot of influence in your high school years and I was fortunate in school. I always did pretty well in math and I had a chemistry teacher in my junior year of high school who really spent time with me and started to develop some of the skills that that I was um, working on in her class. And she really mentored me more than just being a teacher by herself. So that really started to shape my view on, okay, how could I use the math skills that seemed to come a little more naturally to me and some of her input. And that's, that's what kind of shaped chemical engineering. And then like many instances, necessity drove where I went to school. I always tell everybody, my dad said, if you want to go to a school in state, I'm happy to pay for it. And if you want to go to a school out of state, I wish you the best of luck in financing that. And so, so anyway, we, we were living in North Carolina at the time and NC State was really the, the university there in North Carolina that had the best chemical engineering program at the time. And so that's, that's where I ended up going. Um, and, and combining those two. But really, the the mentor-teacher piece influenced the direction more than anything else. Yeah, it's amazing just the impact of mentors or coaches and just 
the things that I learn, obviously I think about sports a lot. I coach a lot of youth sports, but just the incredible coaches I've had, but mentors, teachers, some good, some not so good that steered me in directions and just were so influenced by the people that are around us. That is an interesting point, Darren, because it was there was an equal influence from my math teacher at the time, but the motivations were different and the genuine interest was different. I hadn't really thought about it, but that that's one of the things I you, you and I have spent a little bit of time together. You know, I enjoy working with people and kind of sharing some of my experiences and trying to help them continue to evolve and grow in what they're working on. And my chemistry teacher took the bent of really wanting to support and help me grow and learn as a person and develop a core skill set that could be valuable to me later. My math teacher took a different bent, which was kind of moving her agenda forward. And and it, it made a big impact on me, even at, you know, at 16 years old, you could tell the motivations and gravitate toward those who have that caring, supportive priority when, when they're interacting with you. What was next for you? So what were you thinking of in college or graduating as a chemical engineer? And what were you thinking of career-wise at that time? Yeah. So at, at that point, I didn't know a lot of, you know, like like most 18-year-old kids, uh, they don't really know what the real working world is going to be like. And I was fortunate that where, where I went to college, they had a um, co-op program. So you went to your freshman year, then your the last three years took four years, but you were rotating, working a semester and going to school a semester. So you were in school or working the remaining four years. So it took a year longer, but you graduated with a year and a half of work experience. I was fortunate. I got a job with a um, DuPont. Um, they had a chemical uh, manufacturing facility down in on the coast in North Carolina. And so I worked down there and I thought I wanted to be an engineer. You know, I did. Miss Syed said, hey, chemical engineering is a good thing for you to go into. And it turned out the academic part of chemical engineering went okay for me. And I learned a lot and I really enjoyed it. So I thought, hey, the the next step is to be a chemical engineer. And uh, that co-op job taught me a lot about the reality of the day in and day out. And something that I continue to use, which is, you know, put yourself in the experience and really learn from it before you you commit at a high level. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later as well. But I learned I did not want to be a chemical engineer. And at that point, I was about three quarters of the way through my degree. And I felt like the best thing to do is finish the degree. So I went into sales in the chemical industry because I was not that interested in what the chemical engineers called kicking pumps and doing all the chemical engineering work. But I was fortunate and secured a job with a chemical company, but I was in their sales organization. So I was able to leverage some of the technical background, but not have to kick pumps and work midnight shift and all that stuff that you have to do. So what was that like? I mean, that seems like a pretty wild transition from kicking pumps. I hadn't heard that expression before to actually going out and selling. So how do you go about just learning how to become a salesperson? So the reason I picked the company to work for that I did was that they had a really good training program. You came in and they had an inside sales team. So you were you were on the phone, but it was pretty intense training on their product portfolio and a lot of support. And something that that I think was super valuable was to be with an organization that put that kind of investment in what was needed for their people to be successful. And they, during the interview process and the educational process, I learned, you know, that they can teach you how to 
do the selling part, but the technical part is tough. It's tougher to teach. And so they were happy to spend the time needed to get me up to speed. And I, I needed a lot of help at that point. I'd never sold anything in my life. And so you started inside and you did a lot of work on the phones and learned a ton. And then you, I eventually moved into a field role and traveled different regions of the country. I was in the Northeast for a couple of years and I was in Chicago for a couple of years doing the face-to-face selling. So that, that was different too. But I was fortunate that I was able to work with an organization that had made the commitment to that kind of training investment. Yeah, it's fantastic. First exposure to selling. <laughs> I'll share my story. My first time selling, gosh, I don't know how old it was, probably 10 years old. And we were doing a fundraiser of selling stuffed animals for our school. And I go and knock on the door of, of Gary across the street, this, this really cool German guy. And I said, you know, probably something like, hey, Gary, you want to buy some stuffed animals? He looks at me like, yeah, no chance, kid. So it closes the door and that's it. Just played that tape forward and actually kept me out of sales for a long time, but just didn't realize anything about selling and play the tape back and what I would have said in terms of the importance of education in my family just so happens we're offering stuffed animals and probably could have been successful, but definitely a very different experience from your sales opportunity. Yeah. The, the WIFM is really important to put first in those sales conversations for the other person, make sure they, they, they are, they're buying what you're, you're selling or make sure you're selling the, the right thing to them. That's for sure. I learned that the hard way. So what was next beyond that in terms of just your next evolution of your career? And just, I think I I see you moved into marketing and some other roles as well. So I did that for about three or four years and really enjoyed it, had a good experience. The, The chemical industry in general is pretty conservative space. And the last role I had by this organization, my sales territory was actually based out of the headquarters, the home office. And so I had the opportunity to interact with finance team members, manufacturing, marketing, executive staff. I was really fortunate that I got to spend time with a lot of different disciplines in the organization and started to enjoy the work that I saw being done in the marketing team there. And so I approached my boss at the time and said, hey, I'm, I'm really interested in exploring some marketing opportunities in the organization. He said, well, Brad, that, that's great. So in five, six years, after you've got some more experience under your belt, we'll be really interested in talking to you about that. And I'm like, I'm, I'm 23 years old, 24 years old. I've got no interest in waiting five or six years. And so I started exploring ways that I could build a broader business knowledge and understanding. And going back to school was the most obvious choice for me at that time. And I made a lot of did a lot of work investigating going back full-time or part-time and realized that I, if I, if I was going to do it, I wanted to be fully committed and put myself in a position that was going to challenge me as much as possible. Because as most people probably know, the engineering experience that you get in college teaches you nothing about business, really. It doesn't teach you about leadership. doesn't teach you about communication. It doesn't teach you about finance and strategy. It's it's pretty limited in its technical capabilities. So I targeted the the highest ranked school in the country that would take me and was fortunate. I got into Duke in their MBA program. And so I left the company I was working for at the time and went back to business school to do exactly that, to get a lot more of the foundation and grounding and areas of expertise that I really didn't have 
and put myself in a position where I could pursue that longer term. At that time, I thought I wanted to be a marketer. And it turns out I did do quite a bit of that for a while. But that was the turning point for me was probably something that wasn't a hard five to seven years that I was going to have to wait. But I took it as such and uh, decided to leave and go back to business school. Yeah, it's a long slog and not a great uh, signal by a leader to say five to six years with someone who's chomping at the bit to make a transition. Yeah. But anyway, it worked, it worked out great for me. I ended up meeting my wife at business school. So that's what she says was the best thing that ever happened to me in business school, of course. So when did you realize you wanted to be a CEO? That's a great question, Darren. I came out of business school and I got into the medical device space, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. And as I spent more and more time predominantly in sales and marketing roles, it became apparent to me that I was really intrigued by the opportunity to explore market opportunities and put value propositions around them and just have more and more influence on that. And so one of the side paths I went down in, in part of my career was doing merger and acquisition work. I did that for about three years. And that that was incredibly informative around what good practices look like in running a manufacturing operation, what good practices look like in running sales and what bad practices look like, you know, across the board. And it was really that M&A experience, Darren, that I kind of fell into because of some of the work I was doing in marketing. We were looking at business opportunities, companies to acquire, and I fell into the work. But that's really what started to shape my thought process, hey, I'd like to have a bigger opportunity to put some work into and have a, my fingerprints on the totality of the enterprise versus just one segment of it. And that started to fuel my desire to really potentially evaluate that. And um, it came a lot sooner in my career than I ever anticipated. I was just really fortunate in the place that I was working at the time, it, it worked out. But, you know, the answer to your question on what shaped it, it was the the business background in marketing and sales, and then coupled that with the M&A experience really piqued my interest because I just thoroughly enjoyed putting all those puzzle pieces together to think about how you can have a successful organization. Yes, yeah, so as you had that just recognition of that's the role you wanted, you want to have more influence, more impact, more focus on strategy. What do you actually go do? Because I think a lot of times people just assume that CEOs just were born that way. They had all the skills and leadership behaviors. Like, what did you practically actually have to go do? Like, what were the skills? What were the behaviors? What were the experiences that you sought out? The first thing I did was I talked to a bunch of CEOs and just picked their brain. Like, you know, I did a lot of what you're asking me right now, which is how did you get there? What was the thought process? What did you find was most critical for you to get there? And it was the broader leadership experience across multiple functions and really the ability to have a view of enterprise success versus functional success in an organization. And so at the time I was working for eventually the company I became uh, CEO of and the founder that was running it. I had several conversations with him about how I could start to make a bigger impact in the organization. And so we carved off a piece of it 
sales, marketing, and research and development and gave me that broader responsibility that had much more of an enterprise impact. And it was all interconnected. You know, the product development, you're making the product that the sales guy is going to sell and the marketing team is supporting both the input for the product to be made and the support of the sales team. And so those three functions made some sense to peel off. And I got really lucky that he was supportive. He mentored me through the process and put me in a position to really sink or swim on, can you do that? Can you have this higher enterprise influence? And at the time we were owned by a public company. And so the opportunity to also demonstrate how you influence up as well as in influence down was very, very important, both to the board of directors, as well as your peers in different parts of the organization. So it really was just more enterprise perspective and enterprise influence that was the difference in what I had done and what I needed to be better at in order for the CEO role to be within reach. So you've done a, a bunch of things, so sales and marketing, and now you're stepping into a, a big role. Like, How did you go about building that confidence to execute it just at a, a very different level than what you've done before? I'm fortunate, Darren, that the sales and marketing I had done up until that point, so I was reasonably comfortable in those functional environments. And then the R&D piece actually was very comfortable for me because of my engineering background. And, you know, taking vacuum cleaners apart and all the stuff I told you from my childhood that was just a natural curiosity that came out for me routinely. And so the comfort level was there. I didn't know the specifics, but I took those areas where I had some level of comfort and just added a little bit of uncertainty to the mix. And that put me in a position to feel like I had a shot at doing it. And it, was, and it was a shot. I think there were no guarantees that that was going to lead to anything beyond that role. But I think the one area that I developed at that time, more broadly, that in retrospect was very critical was just the ability to say, I don't know. And when you're working with someone and you don't have an answer, I think so many times leaders feel like they're expected to have the answer. And I was fortunate that I was in a space that I didn't know very well at all, the bracing and orthotic space. And so I was able to say, I don't know enough that I realized that when I say, I don't know, better things come out because the people who do know and the resources that are really valuable in driving the success of the organization step in and feel empowered and, and take more of a role in doing that. And so I was, I was fortunate that that combination of having some background, but having a pretty big knowledge gap on the industry worked out in my favor. That's tough for most people to have that level of vulnerability, have that level of just frankly, humility. Actually, I'd be curious to, to ask you is why do you think people are afraid to say, I don't know? Again, I think it's, as in most circumstances, it's, it's your ego. You know, I think it is something that you feel like it's going to threaten what other people think of you. It's going to threaten what you think of yourself. I was hired to do the job. I should have the answers. It's very natural to feel that way. 
and to have that dynamic play out. And I think there are some environments that exist where that, that is not rewarded. You are expected to know and you are expected to, to give the direction. And unfortunately, enough of those environments exist that that's many times a safer mindset to take than the vulnerability and curiosity mindset. And then it starts to feed on itself. When you actually do put yourself in a position to exhibit the courage that's necessary to, hey, I don't know the answer to that, or I'm not sure, I know we should figure it out, but uh, I don't know. And you see what that generates and what comes out of that, then you realize a much better outcome is, is usually the case. And sometimes the courage just comes out of necessity because you really don't know. You find yourself in a situation where the opportunity to screw up becomes much bigger if you act like you know than to say, I don't know. One thing I didn't mention about my childhood growing up, my, my dad was a, an executive and super successful guy. And we, we moved 14 times in 21 years. And, and the reason I bring that up is it required me to be vulnerable. I, I didn't have the friends I had to open up. And I think that that vulnerability stem from a, a, a lot of the situations that you just kind of put yourself into and you have to figure things out. But it's one of the things that I feel like in my career was one of the focuses that I had and tried to keep front and center as much as possible because it is so powerful and it's hard. I mean, it really is hard. You don't know what the outcome's going to be. And so it's scary. But that's usually where growth happens is when you lean into a fear that you have, you're, you're always going to have them. I still have them today. Everybody does. And you exhibit the courage to lean into that. You see what can come out of it. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, tell me more about that. I mean, I think about fear and people shying away from it, but talk to me about leaning into a fear and how that's productive. It's really hard, first of all, to do it. So I, I don't want to minimize it. And I, I still struggle with it on a day in and day out basis. But like any anything else in life, the more you practice it, the, usually the better you get at it. In a worst case scenario, at least you get more comfortable with it. And the opportunity to realize that to self-reflect and understand, hey, I'm operating from fear right now. This is driving me to not ask a certain question, to not take a certain action and start to test yourself a little bit. Start with small things and get bigger and bigger. And you start to see that, first of all, they don't always work out. Sometimes your fear is absolutely right. And what you feared happens does happen. Just like when you're playing sports, you can strike out, you can drop the pass in the end zone, you can foul the guy who goes to the line and wins the game because there's no time on You can do all that stuff, but leaning into the risk is largely going to either teach you something or advance your effectiveness in what you're doing, and playing conservative rarely does that. I've just not found that when you operate from a position of fear and restrict what you do or what you say because of that fear, it usually doesn't advance 
your progress against what you're trying to get done, either in your personal growth or in the role that you're playing or in personal relationships, whatever those may be. And fear shows up in every aspect of everybody's life, you know, whether it be your relationship with your kids, relationship with your significant other, the relationship with your boss, the relationship with your peers. It's all over the place. Yeah, it's interesting. I, first of all, it has to be an opportunity alongside that fear. I just started just to force myself, just say yes, just go for it, just do it because that is where the growth happens. You know, the word I would use is discomfort, but yeah, fear is definitely the manifestation of that discomfort for sure. It is. And, and it, it's a hard thing to do, Darren. I mean, you, I mean, you've had a really successful career and you've leaned into a lot more risk than I have, you know, in the short time that you and I have spent together face-to-face. I've learned a lot about how comfortable you are leaning into risk. And it's impressive to be able to do that. And it's one of those skills, I think, that as you have the opportunity to do it more, you should take advantage of it because it pays tremendous dividends in, like you and I were just talking about, at a minimum in, in a growth opportunity for yourself. So what would your advice be to people who are can't quite lean into that fear. They just they just have these nagging fears about the promotion that they desperately want, but they're afraid to ask for. They're okay with that six years in the sales job when they really want that marketing job right away. Think about switching careers. Like, what would your advice be to those people? I had one of the guys that I work with one time. He goes, "So, Brad, are you having the death conversation with yourself right now?" I'm like, death conversation? What are you talking about? He goes, "You know, you ask for the promotion." Your boss gets mad, you get fired, you don't have an income, you can't eat, you don't have a house, and then you die, right? And so, so many people play all the downsides forward that could happen as I have spent more time leaning into it. Two things I would say that have started to become more prevalent for me, which is any real significant risk, think about mitigating it, okay? Maybe I won't ask for the promotion. Maybe I'll ask to shadow the persons in that job right now so I can go learn and start to learn and become more valuable so that I can put myself in a position. Or I say, hey, what would it take for me to be considered for a promotion in that role? And there may be gaps that I don't see and understand. So those are steps short of asking the promotion that still... Like I said, you're taking one step towards it and then also really get serious with yourself about what the real risk is. Because so many times our ego is designed to protect us and it does a really good job of protecting us. And sometimes it does too good of a job because it keeps us from leaning into risk. And so back up and really evaluate, hey, this risk that I'm perceiving, is it really that big? Is it really as big as I think? And so those are two things that I found myself practicing a little bit more as, as I get more and more comfortable leaning into fear that have helped me do it more often. You make a great point in terms of just, we, we pull out of proportion, the actual risk and the downside, the death conversation, or it's like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. I mean, so many times it's it's perception, right? It's like, what are people going to think about me? What are, what are people going to think when I ask that client for, or what are they going to think of me when I ask them to, I, mean, I think about this stuff all the time, right? Are they going to think negatively of me? But it's like, we blow that way out of proportion. We do. Yeah. And, 
and we and we get concerned about what other people are going to think of us because we want to be accepted. I mean, that's just human nature. And the other thing that I've started to develop over time is just to really understand the source of the fear. Like the one you just pointed out is the reason that you care what other people think is you don't want to be ostracized or you don't want to be thought of in a bad light by somebody. And probably nine times out of 10, none of that's going to happen. You're making it up. And it's an opportunity just to get clear with yourself about what, what that could really look like. Yeah, I know for me, it's just when I started writing and putting writing out there publicly, I was just was so worried about dinging my brand, you know, burn, well-burnished brand, trying to do a good job over the years as a consultant or whatever the work was. And it's so scary putting those things out there and and facing the the judgment publishing the book was like, okay, now you're actually entering the, the court of internet opinion, which can be ruthless, by the way. But you know, without doing those things, it's, you know, that's, there's, there's so much missed opportunity in terms of not going for it. You know, what I found is that is addressing some of that fear by being more authentic, which is a little bit scary as well. But I found that when you're more authentic, it lands so much better. And just, you know, actually it's interesting as I thought about that when I was putting the book out there, not just writing the book that I thought people wanted me to write, but writing the book that I wanted to write. And, it definitely felt better in the process, but I can tell you it was definitely received better by people by being more authentic, but it's, it's a constant battle in terms of finding that right voice or showing up as the leader that you want to be, not what people think you should be. So it's, it's an ongoing struggle for sure. That's impressive. What you did there with the demonstration of authenticity, it's a hard thing to do. It's, it's not exactly the same, but somewhat related to vulnerability because you're, taking all the filters off of who you are and what you think. And that is tough for all of us, many of us in in more ways than others to do. But I think if you flip the thought process and think about receiving communication from somebody who's being vulnerable or receiving communication from somebody who's being authentic, think about your own personal reaction when that happens you're more engendered to support and be in a position to help a person that's doing that or to want to learn more. So it's, it's something that is scary, but as a recipient of those interactions, when I interact with a vulnerable leader or an authentic leader, I find it to be much more productive and successful. And it rarely is a detriment to the relationship and usually boost it quite considerably. I'd love to switch gears a little bit because you have a unique experience as a CEO. So being a CEO of at least a portfolio company of a publicly traded company, but then also being the transition then being the CEO of that same company when it was acquired by a private equity firm. Talk to me about the, the differences of being a CEO of a private company versus public versus owned by private equity. I think there's a lot of some nuance there and also some misconceptions. There definitely is, Darren. So the company that I, I recently finished working with is Bragg, as you mentioned earlier. When I first joined them or took the role back in 2008, we were owned by a larger orthopedic organization. And so we were a division of the public company. And the focus for the public company is, I always called it the 89-day drill. So we we've got 89 days before our quarterly earnings are announced. 
And there's a significant focus on that quarterly earnings number because it drives stock price and because that generally is related to incentives for the stockholders, the employees in the organization. But that that's a pretty significant driver to the types of activities that get prioritized in a public organization. And it's certainly more short-sighted than I like to operate, and I think many leaders like to operate, but it's a reality. And there's there's a lot of value that's brought to this world by public organizations. And so it is not something that is a de facto detractor of value being brought to society, but it's a tough dynamic to manage because the alignment around incentive structures looks reasonable when you align the CEO and you align management around stock performance and value of the company. I think the challenge becomes the 89-day management piece. It's tough to maintain a long-term perspective in a public company unless things are going incredibly well. And even then, the financial markets they don't have long memories. So the fact that you had a great quarter last quarter and you didn't meet your expectations this quarter, last quarter doesn't matter very much because it, it's always factored into the stock price. So that that was probably the most different dynamic, Darren, compare and contrast to private was that we transitioned over to ownership of a private equity firm in 2012. And the focus then became on long-term value creation. So I, I would say that was the biggest stark difference because private equity firms, they generally get their return on investment, not from a quarterly stock price or a daily stock price change. They get their return on investment when they sell the company. And so they're generally looking at a three to seven year time horizon. I found that very rewarding to have that difference in time horizon. And you could really do some of the things that in the short term made less sense to your earnings performance, but made more sense longer term in many cases. So how did your leadership style shift in terms of going from that part of that uh, division of that public company to being owned by private equity? What was your just like behaviors? Like how did your style change? So I would say the major thing that changes there are moving from being more tactically oriented in the public organization to having the opportunity to really back up and look at a market opportunity, look at dynamics in the market and be much more strategic about the way you set goals and you set priorities for the organization. So in a public organization where you've got the shorter term focus, you're thinking about very tactically oriented goals that you set for the company that are going to have a short-term impact on the earnings per share. And that doesn't allow you in many cases to back away and say, okay, I need to look three years out. Whereas we've all talked about, you need to think about where the puck is going, not where it is. And there was a lot less of that going on in the public environment. So I had to switch and start thinking more about the longer term growth and value creation that the company could achieve versus the short-term work that had been much more prevalent when we were owned by a public company. One of the things that has struck me just in in this conversation, but just in the few times we've met up before, is just the 
just the incredible amount of humility that you have as a leader. And I, I don't think that people naturally assume that CEOs, humility is probably not the first word that comes out of their mouth. So can you talk to me a little bit about, you shared some great examples of vulnerability and saying, I don't know, which is really rooted in a sense of humility. But can you share a little bit in terms of the benefits of humility in terms of just how that's impacted the people that, that work around you on your leadership team and just even more broadly within an organization? It's a great question, Darren. I mean, I think I've been fortunate that I've had some great mentors that have helped me understand the power of being humble. And I was also fortunate that, you know, my parents instilled that in me early. So I will say that there were a couple of things that went right for me that led me to understand the, the, the need for and the value in being humble maybe more than, than some others, but I will tell you, usually people do not come to work for you because they want someone to tell them what to do. That's not generally why people show up to work every day. People show up to work every day, usually because they want to make a difference. They want to advance their personal and professional growth. And if you're telling people what to do, and I, you know, I'm, I'm making a little bit of a broad reach here saying, hey, if you're not humble, you're routinely telling people what to do. But that is true in many cases. And I learned that people are much more engaged when you don't have the answers. People are much more engaged when you can say, I don't know the answer, but here are some things we can think about. What do you think? And I frankly just found it a lot more fun. When you start to see that as you realize that you don't have to have all the answers, not everybody wants you to have the answers, and you can be authentic and vulnerable and humble, and everybody feels like it's a much better circumstance, the things get done faster, they get done more efficiently, they get done with less politics, and then it starts to feed on itself. You realize how critical of a leadership capability that is, and you start to work on it and you start to pay attention to it a lot more. And I was fortunate in my career, I had some very good coaches and one of them in particular, he did a really nice job of helping me understand how your body reacts when you're not acting from a place of humility. You know, when you are acting from your ego and your body tells you, I mean, we, we've all done it. We've all had our forehead crinkle or mine is right here in the back of my neck gets a little tense. I'm like, okay, I can feel that that's going on right now. And I need to pay attention to that and start to be more understanding of not being directive for others. But again, it's a hard thing to do. And I'll tell you, I've, I've, I've worked on it a lot. And one, one of my favorite business books is good to great. Many people have read it. And it, I just think it does such a super job of outlining some key things that are consistent with most long-term successful organizations. And that's the first thing they talk about is having a level five leader and the humility and the courage are two things that are very powerful when they come together. And that always sat with me to hear that. And so I, I found myself wanting to learn more and more about how I do a better job there. That's interesting. You talk about humility and it actually being more fun 
I don't think people probably think about that naturally. It's like, I want to be more humble to just kind of create better relationships with my team to empower them. But fun is an interesting word you use. I mean, I, I found that to be true with being more authentic is it's just a better way to live your life. It's just more fun and humility being that all knowing leader, whatever it is, not just a CEO, but a manager, whatever it is. It's just, it's like, it's a lot of weight to carry. Always have to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah. If you have to have all the answers, that's uh, I mean, there's plenty of stress in leadership roles without that. And you're right. If you're the one who has to have all the answers all the time, that's a tremendous amount of pressure to put on yourself. It really flies in the face of why you even have a team. Yeah. Great point. It's just that that's what the team is for, right? So ideally a team of experts in their own ways. One other question I want to ask you, because you talked about it before and it brings up the idea of being an inch deep and a mile wide versus, you know, an inch wide and a mile deep. And I'm curious because you clearly have a background, a lot of cross training, if you will, and saw the value. I mean, do you mind sharing your perspective on that, particularly as it pertains to elevating within an organization? So that's a fantastic question, Darren, because it is it is something that I think is harder to get comfortable with the broader level of responsibility you have. And by definition, you become shallower and wider. That's just the nature of expanded leadership responsibility. And one thing I, I learned the hard way several times, which I'm happy to tell you over our next cup of coffee, is that you have to realize that having somebody on your team that is smarter and better than you are is a great thing. And I first started to learn that in areas where my expertise was very poor. As I mentioned earlier, I was in the medical device space. If you had to rely on me for my regulatory affairs and quality expertise, you'd be in big trouble. And so I learned that leaning on others is exactly what your job is as a leader. You are tasked with leaning on other people's expertise because that's what's necessary for the team to be successful. And you're also responsible for learning how to ask good questions so that those people who are in, you know, in this case, the quality and regulatory roles, they are keeping their eyes on as much as you need them to do in the role. So I shifted from having to have the expertise to learning how to ask questions that led to us having a good understanding of were we doing the things we needed to do to be, to be successful in a, in a given area. And so that is a tough lesson, particularly, I think I would be surprised if you haven't experienced this as well in your coaching work. One of the biggest transitions anybody ever makes in their career is going from a strong individual contributor to a leader, which is exactly what you're talking about. You're just spreading yourself wider and not as deep because you're used to knowing everything. You're used to being the expert. And, and now you have to say, I'm not the expert anymore and make that psychological transition to being supportive of your team being successful. So it's a long answer to a short question, but it, it's, a, it's a super valuable topic to talk about because it limits a lot of people from being successful in a broader leadership role because they do feel like they need to be experts just like they were in the discipline that they progressed in prior to that. 
And even if it's just a, that first promotion to that first level manager, and maybe you are the expert, you know more, it's still avoiding that command and control. And, and how do you empower your teammates to actually to have a voice and to speak up and give them that latitude for how to execute against the task or an objective? So I think that's important as well as to think about just even if you are the expert, but how do you empower your team? How do you give them that platform to succeed? One of my mentors, guy I worked for one time, he said, Brad, if they can do the job 60% as well as you can, then they should do the job. I always thought about that from a rule of thumb standpoint, because you, you do have, you know, my background was sales and marketing. So the sales and marketing folks that I worked with, in many cases, I had had more experiences than they had had, but I had to make sure I paid attention to the fact that they're there to be a part of the team and to grow and to learn. By the way, I'm also maybe a little rusty in what I'm doing. So you need to make sure they feel fully accountable and responsible for what they're doing. And in those instances, and there are instances where the person does not have any experience and then that's your coaching opportunity, right? That's not the opportunity to step in and tell somebody what to do. That's your opportunity to start to coach and support and put them in a position to have a fantastic learning experience. So if not the next time, the time after that, they can handle it all on their own. And that's, that's a big deal as a leader to figure out. And I made many, many mistakes, not leaning into the coaching opportunity that was presented to me and using it as a telling opportunity. And the two are very different. It's really hard for people when they make that that first jump. And I see it all the time. I work with a ton of companies where it's like that is, I'll just do it myself. It's like, well, yeah, that may work in the very, very short term. But just think about the missed opportunities you talked about of growing and developing your team. And also just even you flexing that muscle too as a leader to become that coach of your team as well. I think you're, you're spot on. I mean, the, the people on your team want to grow and learn. And you have the opportunity to grow and learn and just how you, what, what you, the topics around which you grow and learn just become different, which is more coaching and mentoring. Brad, appreciate your time. Always fun catching up, learning and hearing your experiences. So thanks for coming on today. Yeah. Thanks, Darren. Look forward to talking to you later. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you're walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks and see you all in the next episode.